You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee, and with me again is Paul Doroshenko. Hello, thank you for inviting me once again. Yes, well, you're my favorite guest. Thank you. Because you're always available, because I whine, <laughs> and then you come on. <laughs> you know, I, I have. it's always very awkward for me at the beginning of this conversation. I know I, it is. Yeah. So I, I try and make I, it more awkward for You're trying to make, me, uh, make it awkward for me. Yeah, I yeah. do. It's deliberate. Okay, that's fine. Anyway, let's get right to it. Let's get right to it because lots of driving law related news this week and the biggest one. It's been a fun week. Michael Spratt came to visit us. Yes. Hello, Michael. I'm sure you don't listen to our podcast, our lowly little podcast, but it was nice to see you. Hmm. He tested himself on the Drager Drug Test 5000. And he came out clean. Yeah, he came out clean and he came out with a constitutional opinion. Oh, good. Interesting. Yes. He, uh, he didn't look like he'd come out clean. Are you jet lagged, probably. You're you're judging him on the basis of having a beard and no. wearing a ball cap. No. Well, okay, sure. Yeah. No, I just <laughs> thought maybe he came to BC to enjoy some BC bud. Well, it's legal all across Canada now, Paul. I know, but the quality, the quality <laughs> cannabis, I assume, is still made in BC. I don't know. I I I would not I mean, know. It looked like he had, you know, maybe enjoyed himself having some. And he, um, uh, it is legal, and he certainly could if he wanted. And um, in the end, he came out with no cannabis, no THC in his system, according to the Drager Drug Test 5000, if you trust it. Yes, with, the, you know, it's a 12% false negative rate. So, you know, Michael could have well been in the 12%. You never know. You never know. That's true. Uh, anyway, his constitutional opinion, much like ours, is that it takes way too long and is way too invasive to be a valid system. For I testing thought, people. you know, when I've only done it once on myself, and the putting that mouthpiece in your mouth, it felt like I was going to cut my gums. Yep. Yep. And I've uh, some of the people I've tested have taken it out of their mouths, and it's been bloodied. Bloodied. Yeah. Yeah. It's disgusting. Uh, <laughs> so. Great. That was great. Our our suspicions have been confirmed by at least one other person who's totally unbiased. Oh, about the a- whole thing. absolutely. Yeah. You know, criminal defense lawyers. We all approach it um, without uh, without any bias whatsoever. Anyway, more important than Michael Spratt's visit is British Columbia's finally released its report, authored by Bowen Ma, on the ride hailing services in BC and um, the. Minister of Transportation, Claire Trevanna, has also introduced what rules and regulations the government is going to require for ride-hailing services. So class four license, commercial class license, four license, but yes. it's the restricted class four. You don't have to have the bus driver license. You have to have the taxi driver equivalent license, but you're not going to have to go apply for a taxi permanent permit in front of City Hall or through the the whoever taxi police officer is for each different jurisdiction. Yeah, and a lot of people seem to be very outraged about this. They think that it imposes too significant a burden on people. It requires a written examination, 
um, to prove that you know some things about basic maintenance of your vehicle as well as your obligations when you're transporting other people around. Um, and then it requires a medical evaluation. To make I'm, I'm wondering if the uh, if Uber drivers are going to be exempt from having their seat belted at lower speeds like taxi drivers are. That will probably have to be litigated because the exemption isn't taxi drivers. The exemption is people who need to get in and out of their vehicles in the course of their employment. Huh. So I haven't looked at it in a while. I have looked at it because I've had taxi drivers with that. Yeah. Um, there's conflicting case law on it involving taxi drivers, in fact. Hmm. But uh, no, I, I mean, I think, as far as I'm concerned... I think the class four license is a good idea. I understand the complaints that other people have, like other provinces don't require it. But frankly, as a passenger, I would feel much more comfortable knowing that the person behind the wheel has taken some training to ensure that they know what to do to keep their vehicle in good maintenance look, and is medically fit to be driving. Look at the bad driving you see on the road all the time. You yeah. see so much bad driving, but of course you also see taxi drivers doing all sorts of things they shouldn't do. So will it correct their driving? Probably I mean, not. at least they'll know, at least they'll know they're not supposed to make a U-turn in a commercial district over a double solid line, like hopefully after they've done a class four, <laughs> class four test. But, I mean, it's the same training, right? And there's probably, I don't know how much more training, if there's a different book for class four. If it's, it's it's more about, like, the mechanical fitness of your vehicle and doing, like, a, like a pre-trip inspection to make sure that your vehicle is not going to break down while you're driving it for a commercial purpose um, and keeping it in good maintenance, you know, routine oil changes or all those things I forget to do on my car. I don't know that uh, your car alerts you, I think, when you have yeah, to do that. Um, the, uh, I, yeah, I okay. feel like I get a call from like the, the dealership going, you need this and you need that. They just want your money. Yeah, I know. Um, the um, No, I, I mean, I, I'm just hoping that the test requires people to once again think about all of those other rules that they had in their test when they originally got their Class 7 learners because so many people you know, don't remember those things. Now, one of the big complaints that people have about this is that it's going to promote, pr create a financial burden for people who want to get into the ride hailing work. Well, that's, a, that's the, the barrier to entry. I mean, they're trying to create a barrier to entry at the same time. So it's got, an, it's got more than one use. I mean, aside from the fact that you're making sure that the people properly know the rules of the road and are are equipped to be doing this they also have a barrier to entry so you can't just decide on a you know thursday afternoon i'm going to start driving for uber thursday night uh and 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 i think that also serves to protect the taxi drivers a little bit yeah well i mean you have to balance those competing industries because we've talked to taxi drivers in other jurisdictions that have had uber and a lot of them are really struggling now and for taxi drivers in Vancouver, it's a huge, huge initial financial investment to get the license and to get the vehicle and to get on the road and do all of that. Well, it's going to put a bunch of taxi drivers off the road and they're going to end up driving Ubers like we've seen in other jurisdictions see, too. See, I don't think that's going to happen here because we have never had a taxi service here that has been good enough like we've never had enough taxis available to meet the demand not even close i mean how many times have you been standing in the freezing cold in december on a busy street in downtown for 15 20 30 minutes 
in the last 10 years, yes, but in the first 10 years after I moved to Vancouver, I think that was less common. Um, I think a lot of taxi drivers moved into working in construction. And so I think we have fewer taxis as a result of our booming construction industry. Yeah, well, I don't know. What do you think? What do you think about the requirements? About the class four requirement? Yeah, no, where I do you it, stand? I think it makes perfect sense. I'm, I'm, I'm with them. Uh, I like the fact that it is a barrier to entry that is uh, not a uh, significant barrier to entry. The nice thing about these ride-sharing things, is, as painful as it may be and, and people not earning a whole lot of money, is that you can get started fairly easily. But there is something that requires a little bit of uh, uh, ensuring that the population is protected. So you can't just be visiting from Alberta and decide to drive for Uber while you're in BC. You actually have to have a BC class four license to be able to do it. And it's protecting the public, not just the people in the car, it's protecting all the public on the road. And when you're driving a uh, ride share, you're perpetually looking for shortcuts because that's how you're gonna make money. And you wanna make sure that the shortcuts that people take do not put the public at risk. And that is my primary concern about it. And I'm glad to see that, you know, in most other respects, it appears that they're not setting up hurdles. This is one hurdle, it's a reasonable hurdle. The Vancouver Police Department supports it. Um, they think that it's good for the protection of public. Do you feel bad about siding with the police? <laughs> I side with the police all the time. Stay, you're making me look like a... I'm kidding. You know that I'm... I mean, I'm, I'm not... Uh, I'm, I'm not not critical of things, but I generally very often get on along with the police officers just fine. Now, what about the the issue of the fees... What about just addressing that by having a a program whereby the fees for the class four license evaluations and whatnot could be waived in circumstances where people demonstrate significant financial hardship and that they need the Uber, Cater, Lyft, whatever job to overcome that financial hardship? I say no. Really? Why? Uh well, I, I am concerned about that. You know, the one thing, again, about Uber is that there are very few barriers to entry generally. You can go lease a car uh, and you can start driving for Uber. And if you're a person who is otherwise going to have difficulty finding a job, so long as you are a safe, lawful driver, um, then you can get out there and drive. And that's a great thing. Um, but I don't think, you know, the cost of, of what is the cost? Look it up. It's, the cost of getting a class people, four is People not are a lot saying of money. it's around $500. The real big expense there, it's about like 300 in, in fees for the exam and the license and, um, and the vehicle inspection. Um, but the real cost comes from the driver's medical exam. So it's a fee charged by doctors, not a fee charged by the government. But the thing here is, I mean, we're, we're still talking about there is a an outlay. There is a, a capital expenditure at the beginning in order to do this. You've got to get the car. Uh, you've got to make sure that the car is safe. What's wrong with that? Um, you have to do it. I mean, it's not, there's not no barriers to entry, you know, in most businesses. This is a business that still has very few barriers to entry. But if I want to get a job at McDonald's, I don't have to have a capital outlay. Yeah, that's a job at McDonald's. That's a different job. Okay, this is a driving around providing a vehicle and and the public having to ride in your vehicle. I mean, there is a capital outlay if you want to have a McDonald's. You got to make sure, you know. Yep. So the, the the and that's where you've got public inside your restaurant. 
So the, uh, no, I mean, I, I think it's a very different thing. I, I don't think that it's such a barrier that it's going to stop a whole lot of people. Most people can borrow $500 from somebody. Um, the uh, I, I don't think that that is a huge barrier, and I'm glad that it is there. But I still think the barrier should be, you know, that uh, every Uber driver should have to be a member of uh, the, the Uber union. Well, there, Unionize. There, there is Say union, yes. There actually are some uh, attempts at Uber uh, drivers unionizing in certain U.S. states, and there's been some judgments from, I think, California, uh, where the California Superior Court ruled that Uber drivers are uh, employees of Uber and are entitled to extra pay for overtime and things like that, even though Uber was trying to characterize them as independent contractors. Yeah, I mean, that's the ongoing problem, right? And I was just sort of being tongue-in-cheek about the union aspect. I, I, I'm just concerned about the extreme exploitation of people. Um, you know, Uber basically says, look, you don't have to continue to work. You can you can log off and that's it. You're done. You, you know, your eight hours are up you're, and it's all up to you. Uh, but you hear of Uber drivers earning less than minimum wage and much less than minimum wage. Uh, and you, um, you know, you worry that this is just a, uh, you know, just because we have the internet and just because we have apps um, doesn't mean that we should um, allow companies to exploit people in that way. Fair enough. Well, then moving on from Uber, I wanted to talk to you about something far from home. In Europe, there is now a proposal to require by 2022 all new vehicles to have speed regulators in them. So these are essentially devices for people who don't know that would um, regulate your speed using GPS mapping software and your vehicle's components, I don't know, the technology of it, but it senses where you are, knows what the speed limit is, and then won't let you drive in excess of that speed limit. Never gonna happen. Um, won't let you drive in excess of the speed limit, never going to happen. But I see speed regulation happening. So for a long time now, um, you know, I don't know, maybe 20 years, German automotive manufacturers have speed regulated their vehicles. Um, you know, even if you buy the biggest Mercedes, you top out at 240 kilometers an hour. And it's been a bit of a problem because it was a it was a pact, right, between the German manufacturers to set that and on the Autobahn, otherwise it's wide open. And um, you know, Jaguar came along and other companies came along that weren't part of that pact because they're not manufacturing in Germany and they have no limit on it. And you get a Jag and you can blast down the Autobahn at 300 kilometers an hour. And it's, I mean, 240 kilometers an hour to me is ridiculous. I've driven well in excess of 200 on the Autobahn. And so are you can do 300 kilometers an hour in a Jag? Uh, there are, Yeah. Like yeah. a regular old Jaguar sedan? Like no, 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 no. I, I like, think the... Like uh, one of the sports ones. The sports ones, probably. But the regular old Jag sedan will easily do 240. Uh, probably 260. <laughs> so the... Um, I just, I could never get over speeds <clears throat> like that. Like, who wants to drive that fast? You'd be I, liquefied if you got in an accident. I've driven 240 on the Autobahn from... Uh, driving from Munich toward uh, up toward Berlin and it's long Why? stretches where there's long stretches where it's three lanes there's nobody on the road you can see 16 kilometers ahead of you and you just you know it's you gonna put the take you down. 16 kilometers to stop uh, yeah uh, anyway I mean I, I probably wouldn't do it again 
but you want to get where you want to go. It's hot out, and you, you know there's not many cars on the road. It anyway, just sounds terrifying. The point is that, like, look, you have a Lamborghini and you live in British Columbia. The fastest you can lawfully drive it is 130 kilometers an hour. Um, the uh, you've got a 130. Yeah. Where can you go 130? 120. 120. 120. 120 on the Coco. I drive 130. <laughs> I've um, been in fastest. the vehicle with you when you've been uh, going a lot well, faster sometimes. than that. Yeah, uh, well, um, so 120. Uh, there's probably places that you can drive in the States where you can take that vehicle where you can drive a little faster than that. I think Montana and North Dakota. Uh, but, you know, realistically, like, there is no reason for you to have a car that can go faster than 160. Uh, yet we sell every car basically can go faster than 160. Uh, you can't do it lawfully. Now, in Japan... There are certain models of Nissans that you can take and take it to a track. And when you get to the track, the GPS will open it up. Uh, it'll recognize that you're on a racetrack. But the rest of the time, they are speed limited to something that's still, you know, in excess of the speed limit, but not ridiculous. Um, they also have these already on commercial vehicles in Canada. Many commercial vehicles are equipped with software equipment that keeps them from going over a certain speed. Yeah, so Volvo has talked now that they're going to put in, in their own vehicle, some sort of speed limiters. And it's kind of, I mean, Volvo has always been sort of the, uh, when it came to speed, the slowpoke in Europe. Um, you know, compared to BMW and Mercedes and Audi, they never they never produced, like, sort of high-end, high-speed well, cars. Well, isn't their, like, their company motto, Volvo, drive safely? Whatever, I don't even know. <laughs> I, I used to... I remember those ads as a kid. Volvo, drive safely. The uh, a 240 Volvo was never anything compared to an E-Class Mercedes when it came to speed. Um, and I loved my 240 Volvo. It was a great car. But the um, you don't need that speed at any time. And there's always these people who, well, we should be able to you know, buy whatever car we want. But really, like a Lamborghini or a Ferrari or, or any of these cars, a McLaren, it's just stupid. Like, it's, I, I to me now, and I'm a car guy. I've always liked cars. Uh, I cannot justify, um, I cannot see how the government can continue to just permit vehicles to go, uh, to have these incredible top speeds that are just a danger to the public and a, and a temptation. And, you know, I know a lot of people who are just excited about those cars would really take issue with me. Um, I get it too, you know, I, I, I understand it. Uh, you know, I, I also have enjoyed in my life driving fast. Uh, but I just cannot see how we can continue to just have basically full-on race cars that can do these incredible speeds on our roads when we know that there's going to be some people who push it. And it's just a matter of time until we, until we legislate it um, one way or another. And I'm hoping that it happens, you know, in the place where you can drive fastest right now in Germany. You know, they could set it so there's no car that's permitted to be sold in Germany um, that has a top end of, you know, higher than 220 kilometers an hour. Uh, that would be a, a good way for them to start. And, you know, the German public is actually, I think, probably open now. Well, to... they've, they've got their, you know, need for speed out. If you need to drive really fast, just take your car to the Autobahn and drive really fast, scare the shit out of yourself, and never need to do it again. Well, it's, 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 it's men, basically, up to about the age of 55 in Germany who are the ones who are, like, 100% supportive of 
of wide open speed limits and that is actually changing a little bit too because anytime there's an accident on the autobahn at those speeds i mean it's many many vehicles and often lots of people dead um you know i've, I've been there and had to detour for four hours because of an accident on the autobahn with 60 cars on a perfectly clear day um, so I, I think that the uh, i think that that attitude may be changing uh, and i think if they're going to start it you know start it in germany okay now, you wanted to talk a little bit about our recent uh, cross-border excursion. Well, because it made the news. So we didn't expect <laughs> it to make it We didn't expect it to make the That's news. That's like my favorite yeah, news just, story yeah. of the year. Well, I don't know if it's my favorite news story of the year. But yeah, so Kyle and I bought a lot of um, breathalyzers over 100 and, well, over 170. I think 172 or 168. We're not the really sure. The number keeps going our, up every time you say. Is it, I thought it was like 150 to 168. I think it's 150 Intox ECIR1s we counted, and uh, we have 16 Intox ECIR2s. So we bought all of the surplus ones that were apparently from the state of Illinois. Um, it was a complex purchase, I can tell you. Uh, and um, then we had them shipped to Sumas, Washington, and then Kyla and I went to pick them up there. And you ask yourself, why would anybody want 168 uh, breathalyzers and it wasn't our intention to get that many we would have been more than happy with 30 um, but uh, <laughs> the um, if you, know, you that's, have to we, buy them all we, you buy it them was, all it was buy them all or not uh, and so it was a little bit more expensive but you know our our main interest was getting some that we could do some more interesting experiments with so we have now a video series uh, called Can You Fail It that we started where we're testing various different things that will give a reading on a approved screening device and there's all of these things that we've wanted to test over the years on fuel cell devices and um, and particularly the intoximeters um, approved instruments and we couldn't get a hold of one. I mean we've had uh, Intox ECIR1 in our office for a while that's functioning but you know you, you don't want to you got one functioning uh, instrument, you don't want to do anything risky with it because they're 12 grand no. each, right? Um, but um, so we bought them all and uh, I won't tell you the price, but we imported them all to Canada. It took us two trips to Sumas in two pickup trucks, Kyla and I doing a, the convoy uh, and loading them all up. And those Intox ECR ones are heavy. They're probably 30 pounds each. And we, yeah, my back is we, still sore. My my knees are sore from crawling around in the back of the truck. And we shipped them all back to Canada. And um, then we, Kyla was tweeting some of the photos um, of us, you know, unloading them at the uh, at the other end. And uh, so I guess it, uh, the newspaper picked it up, and then it yep. became a news story. And Star Metro, so, and then it became a national news story. It was uh, in the Toronto Star. Yeah, C CTV did a did a. Um, story with Kyla and Global did a story with me and uh, everybody's like commenting about me driving around in the forklift. I was at an <laughs> event last night and everybody's like, oh, I saw you driving around on the forklift with it's great. all the breathalyzers. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it is funny and I'm glad everybody's on side. And the other interesting thing is that, you know, for years, you have something you really want to say. Well, you said you're glad everybody's on side. I was going to read you some tweets from some people who are not on side. Okay. Well, let's get to that. But I will say that for years, we have tried to get one of these instruments and it's not like, you know, we want to just get it for quality control, right? We just want to make sure that it's, these things are functioning and we've already found one problem that is a 
like a legitimate concern just by pulling the things apart and looking at them. Yep. Not even testing any of them yet because we still need some other part, but the... Uh, and it's good that we have so many of them. And and a lot of people, are, I know, well, Mark, Mike Farnworth said, and you can listen to Mike Farnworth in an earlier episode of this podcast from the beginning of 2019. Lovely guy. Nice guy. Lovely. Yeah. But he's completely wrong when he says that he doesn't know what we hope to accomplish with a bunch of breathalyzers from Illinois because they're not the same as the police use here. A bunch of American breathalyzers. Yeah, it just happens that it's the exact same model that yeah. we use in British Columbia. And while the programming might be different as far as what prompts are displayed on the screen and what error messages appear. And there says y'all. Yeah, exactly. Not in Illinois. I know. Um, there's gives you a hot dog with uh, pickles and sport peppers on it. Yeah, if you blow over 80, it shows on a poppy seed bun. I don't think so. They don't put ketchup on their hot dogs. Uh, sorry. Um, <laughs> I really like a Chicago dog. Um, Keep talking, Kyla. Not yeah. about hot dogs. Okay, so. The problem is that our concerns are not about software so much as they are the real fundamental technology that's testing people's breath, um, which is a fuel cell. And they, the devices are called the Intox ECIR, and the EC is for electrochemical, and the IR is for infrared, and it suggests, uh, and this was the thing to provide comfort to uh, legislators and comfort to police that it is doing a dual test uh, with each person and that you're getting the results of a dual test and you're not. You're only getting the electrochemical test. That's all that is reported to you uh, if, as a police officer using one of these things. And that bothered me from the beginning and it's something we wanted to investigate. So that's why we bought them. And people apparently, some people love us and think it's great. Uh, some people are very upset that we had to go through this in order to get them. And lots of people in the justice yeah. system are like really uh, upset about, about the that. fact that, you know, that it's, um, that this ability to get this disclosure, to get it in this way and to try it, um, is that, that, that we're impeded by the manufacturer and the distributors well, and so forth. And the government, like, why are they not making it available to us to test? I mean, if, if Mike Farnworth is of the opinion that we're not going to learn anything by testing one that we got from Illinois. Let us borrow one of theirs. Let us borrow one of theirs. Make it available, even the playing field. But if you're going to hamstring the defense by saying you can find out about the technology in that you can get the manual and you can cross-examine the technician if you succeed in an application because the criminal code won't let you automatically cross-examine the tech. Um, but you can, you know, you can cross-examine the technician and you can, you know, read any research you can find online, which you won't find with this instrument because nobody is permitted to use it for the purposes of scientific research. Um, and try and do your best to defend your client that way. I think that is fundamentally unfair. I also don't think that the Supreme Court of Canada, when they've rendered these decisions on what we can get, really understands what we can't get. So the, um, you know, we wanted to get it so we could look inside and just looking inside, we've already learned a lot. You know, I learned a lot with the previous instruments, just opening the thing and staring at it. Uh, you know, two in the morning, I wake up and look at a photograph of the, of the, uh, of the main board and I, oh, okay, well, there's an interesting thing. You know, it's just 
you need some time, you need to be able to look at it, and it, it's quality control, and it also protects the company if they did this at the beginning uh, and did it regularly, because you never know when somebody's going to come along and find something that causes great concern about the tens of thousands of tests that have been conducted up until now. Well, one of the uh, criticisms that we got um, is that we won't find anything that isn't already known. Which, A, okay, maybe, maybe that's the case. Great, fine. At least we have our answers, and I'd rather have peace of mind than a big unanswered question. But secondly, what is already known that they're not wanting us to find by keeping us from having access to this? Well, the other thing is we actually found something already yeah. that we didn't know that yeah. is a concern. Oh, and I'm sure the police don't know about this. There's no way they do. Yeah, there's no way. It's something that's happening Has happened at a higher level. At a higher level and that we've already figured out and it's a concern. Like it's a legitimate, legitimate concern. Now, another person at ICOM Safety Guy tweeted, Glad they are breath techs and DREs in their spare time as lawyers. Congrats on a complete waste of money. Yeah, um, they've already paid for themselves. So, <laughs> and, <laughs> We've learned enough already that they've paid for themselves. It's, it's nice to have them. I would have paid more um, just to get one. We did fine. I mean, it was... Uh, it was complex to do it and it took some time, but it was certainly worth it. Uh, you know, we offered to buy them at full retail originally, um, which was like 12,000 bucks. I, so, I got I to laugh at the, you know, glad they are breath techs in their spare time. Like the sarcasm of suggesting that we're not breath technicians because we haven't had some training course at the Justice Institute. And you know this story, Paul, but I did call the Justice Institute and start the process of registering for the Intox ECIR2 Qualified Technician course. And my registration was rejected. Because? Because I'm not a member of law enforcement. And the course is only open to law enforcement. So another one of those things to impede you from yeah. getting the information and that I asked you them. need to defend your client that it would be fair for you to have. Yeah, and I phoned and I had a lengthy conversation with people <clears throat> at the Justice Institute as to why I wasn't allowed to take a course that I was willing to pay for with my own money and take time out of my life to go and attend that I'm fully capable of doing. It's not exactly difficult. Um, and they said, no, uh, it's only open to law enforcement. We don't want defense learning about how these instruments are operated because we don't want people telling people how to beat the breathalyzer. Well, first of all, there's not a way to beat a breathalyzer. Um, you, you and I know that. The best, the best you could do is reduce your reading by a certain percentage by hyperventilating. And that's not beating the breathalyzer. That's really more about mouth temperature. Well, and you might be getting a more accurate reading when you do that. Or maybe not about mouth temperature. And eventually Jan and Ron are both going to come back on the podcast to I talk about their, their competing theories. theories. Um, but there's no beating the breathalyzer. So that's a completely illegitimate reason. And the person who said that to me knew that that wasn't true at the time. So it's really, they don't want me to be able to say, I took the same training as you and what you did here was not proper procedure, which is ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. But, you know, we do have people who are qualified, uh, have gone through the training course, um, and we those people are available to us. And we've also operated, 
I mean, I've operated and you've operated a BAC Data Master C. We've operated Intox ECIR1. I've uh, operated the ECIR2. ER, yeah, you operated. <laughs> you're the only lawyer I know in Canada who's yeah. operated an Intox ECIR2. We've operated uh, Intox Meters uh, um, Data Master DMT. Uh, you know, we've operated a lot of them. Yeah. I ran into the officer who was there the day I broke into the ECIR2. Uh, this, for, for those who don't know, uh, there's something called a Lexus bus in British Columbia, which is a, a bus that has the Intox ECIR2 breathalyzer on it. And they park it every year at the PE so that when people are having their fun at the PE, they can also get on the bus and see how horrible it would be if they ever got stopped at a check stop. As I understand, that's actually the only purpose for which it's ever been used, and it's never been used in an impaired driving investigation. They do it in Alberta, but in BC, I, yeah, I don't we have think a breathalyzer it's... bus that's really just a giant prop. Yeah. Um, and so I got on the bus, saw the ECIR two was turned on, and went to log in. It required a password, which you a do. certain <laughs> person told me what the password was in the past, and I stored it away in my woman brain for use in the future, um, and uh, logged in. And as I'm sitting there typing on it, the officer comes over and I said, hey, do you have any mouthpieces? And he said, oh yeah, sure, they're down here. He hadn't really processed what I was doing yet. And I said, great, give me one. And he hands me one. He starts to look really confused, and I'm like, but fixing it to the breath tube, checking that the breath tube is warm, and starting the test sequence. And he says, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm taking a breath sample. And he was flabbergasted. Like, he had no idea how to respond, but I could tell he was so mad. Like, his face turned bright red. And I was like, it's okay, I know what I'm doing. I didn't know what I was doing, but I figured it out. Oh, obviously. I got through. I took a breath sample. I passed because I hadn't been drinking um, and, uh, and had my fun. Anyway, I ran into him in traffic court a couple weeks ago and and uh, was chatting with him. And he said, You're, you seem familiar. And I reminded him of that. And he's like, I was so mad that day. I was so mad. I didn't know what to do. I thought maybe sh I should arrest you. Or... Yeah. <laughs> Too late, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Oh. <laughs> so, yeah, I've operated the ECIR too. You don't need much um, special training to become a qualified technician to turn it on and get a breath sample. That's true. And you know all of the other steps that they're supposed to do because you've cross-examined enough police officers on the steps that they're supposed to do beforehand to make sure that it is a proper, reliable test, at least in accordance with the legal requirements in British Columbia, which are different from province to province. They are. This is true. Um, but also which are slowly being eroded by legislative changes. Well, and the and the foolish belief that these devices are are infallible and that they are always going to provide a reliable sample and that you don't have to rely on the police officers doing their jobs correctly. Yep. Now, um, along that same vein, uh, at Mark underscore Beauregard tweeted further, how can idiots experiment on a machine run by experienced professionals, wrong experience spelling, and come to any valid conclusions? Paul, how can we come to valid conclusions in our study of these breathalyzers? Gee, I don't know. I don't know how we could possibly come to valid conclusions, Kyla, except that we use a simulator. Uh, we follow instructions that we get from people in the toxicologists, people in the scientific community. And anything that we identify, any issue that we identify, we give our hypothesis to someone who actually, you know, does this sort of research for a living. It, 
they can either be uh, former government employees, toxicologists, uh, electronic engineers, uh, organic chemists, and then we ask them to test our hypothesis and see whether or not we have got something. So we've done this in the past, uh, done tests in the past. There is a reason that we've determined problems with other instruments. So I, I guess that would be my answer. Right, so we can come to valid conclusions. We can operate the instrument. The technology being from Illinois is the same technology that we use here. It seems like there are actually really no legitimate or well-founded criticisms of what we're planning to do, which brings me back to what are they so afraid of? Yeah, I mean, I, I it's funny because people who really follow what we're doing most of the time um, are not worried about us um no nope. it's the people who are sort of and 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 the people who have followed what we've been doing for like 20 years basically i've been doing 20 years and you've been doing since 2010 uh in my firm generally those people who have followed it all along have a very good idea of what we're doing we're doing it you know <laughs> For legitimate purposes of quality control, yeah, we want to make a better system. And, and, and most police officers who have been police officers for a while realize, yeah, you know what? I really wouldn't want people to be wrongly punished on the basis of something that's malfunctioning or what have you. So it is uh, the us against them thing sort of seems to fall away when they get a little bit more experience. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good place to leave it for this week. Thank you for having me on. Well, thank you for helping of... me acquire, <laughs> oh, helping us acquire, I don't know the correct grammatical phrasing there. I'm... Acquiring with me? There we go. I don't know, but I'm gonna go next door right now and move them around. I can tell you I dropped a couple driving that forklift the other day. Yeah, I saw I saw the picnic blanket and the bottle of red wine in your bag. I know what you're really doing with them. I'm going to have a picnic <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> with the e Intox ECR2s. I didn't drop any of the IR2s. I dropped some of the you IR1s. You dropped a whole pallet of IR1s. No, I, I like six of them fell off or something like that. But I mean, look, we have 150. Uh, we have enough parts. Yeah, we have enough to throw them around <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> and see the, if they break. The IR2s, we have uh, 16 of them. And... Um, the uh, there's at least three that we found that are brand new. Anyway, what I will say is if you are listening to this and you are a scientist of some sort or engineer or somebody with the type of knowledge and experience to help us in our quest to find out what, if anything, can go wrong with these instruments, please reach out. We are talking to all sorts of people. Numerous people have reached out already, and we're always willing to talk to people about that. And if you need to get a hold of us, you can contact us at 604-685-8889 or online at vancouvercriminallaw.com. And tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law.